0: As ask that you grab your copy of the Bible this morning. We're going to be studying a new topic, so let me give you a little context for what we are going to do for the next eight weeks or so. We have a very high view of the Scriptures, and so we want to always emphasize the text itself. We believe the power is not in the personality of a speaker, not in the, the pragmatics of the message, but in the Word of God itself. And so we have a high view of Scripture, and we want to teach most often expositionally. We just want to take Scripture, walk through verse by verse. Every now and then we find it appropriate to do something topically, and so we're going to do a short topical series, and to really set the series up, I want to actually set up how the series came to be, and then you'll kind of get a feel for where we're going and why, and it all boils down to what we just did together, and that is the Lord's... Supper For a long time, and and honestly, even when we planted the church, it was my desire that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But having come from a uh, very Baptist background, once a quarter is what's common. And when we did once a month, that already felt like a dramatic change, so we just left it at that. But uh, for a long time, I've really wanted to move in the direction of doing it um, every Sunday. And we've discussed it as elders, and we're going to give it a try. And what has been requested of me is that I... Um, launch this by teaching through it and, and why. So that grew into, well, I'll do a, a several part series on what the Lord's Supper is, which grew into, well, really, we should just talk about what the ordinances or in some traditions, they're called the sacraments. Or, well, well, the sacraments have something to do with spiritual disciplines and the, the habits of grace or the means of grace. Well, we should study the whole thing in a series about habits. It is the new year, and I started studying this, and it's one of those things, have you ever thought you knew what you were talking about? And then you start doing your homework. You thought you'd already done your homework, but you dig into it and realize, wow, this is a lot more amazing than I had any idea and this has been one of those studies for me. For the last several weeks, so a month now, I've been diving into this particular topic, the means of grace, and particularly the Lord's Supper, and then how it relates to other other acts of the church, so baptism, Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word, prayer, fasting, meditation, scripture, memory, all of these different spiritual disciplines, slash means of grace that we do. It's really blown my mind to learn what's really happening here, like things you already know, but you didn't know were related. Things that you, you know both sides of the coin, you just didn't know they were on the same coin. You'd seen heads before, you'd seen tails before, you could draw them out maybe. But then one day your mind is just blown when you realize it's the same coin. But you're flipping around and that's kind of the experience I've had um, as I've studied this topic and I'm hoping as we dive into what we're going to call the means of grace that uh, you can have a similar experience. I'm not going to say a lot In these series that you haven't heard before, if you've been in the church at all, if you have any experience in Christianity, you're going to see that much of this is you've heard in some way or some fashion everything that's been said, but maybe the dots haven't connected. Maybe you haven't seen the big picture of how it's all related. And we're going to dive in and I think have a very interesting time studying what the means of grace are and uh, how that works in our lives. So really what we're going to find out we're talking about is the work of sanctification. So we're going to spend all of today talking about sanctification, but let me give you a little historical sketch. I'm coming into this topic. So, if you've studied the Reformation at all, if you know anything about church history, you know that one of the main points of division between the Catholics and the Protestants was actually built around which particular thing the church did every Sunday. Communion, the Lord's Supper. They were asking a question, about the presence of Christ. And during the Reformation era, and like any era, in any scenario, there's almost always two polar opposites and of opinion on some topic, and then you end up with a lot of stuff in the middle. We could say that politically here between the far left, is that your left, and the far right? That was really confusing for me, by the way. Um, there's, there's differences, and then usually when we find where there's an extreme on either end, It seems like always the answer ends up being somewhere in the middle. And so, for instance, sola scriptura, that's a big topic for us. Anybody, what's sola scriptura mean? Scripture alone is our authority. This is where we get our scripture. Well, during the time of the Reformation, that wasn't the radical new opinion. That was the central, medium position. The far one side would be the Catholic Church had absolute authority. Their doctrine of magisterium, their tradition trumps The Word of God, because the Word of God rests on their authority. Why is the Word of God the Word of God? Because we say it is. Well, that was the one extreme. The other extreme was, no, I just want to have this direct personal relationship with Jesus. I don't even need the Word to do that. I can go out, spend some time alone in a cave, and just have this relationship with Jesus. Turns out we have that exact same continuum, that spectrum operating today. And the Reformation was a central point that said, no, it doesn't matter what your experience is, it doesn't matter what your tradition is, it matters what God said, His Word has authority that trumps both tradition and experience, sola scriptura, it was this middle ground position. Well, the same is true even in just the practices of the church. I know I grew up in you know your classic Baptist environment where Catholicism kind of meant You know, it was synonymous with pagan and evil, and maybe many of us still use the word that way. And maybe the idea of a Pharisee was synonymous with that of a Catholic mass because there's this perception that everything done in that service is rigid and form-only. There's no true meaning anymore. It's just some objective thing. I can go. I go do the thing. I get credit. I'm good now. It's kind of like doing chores. Did the garbage get put out or not? Yes or no. There's no in-between. It either happened or did not happen. Did you take communion? Yes. Did you get baptized? Yes. And there's several other sacraments in their church. Did you do those things? Okay, you get credit. Simple. Well, the opposite mystical side would say, yeah, but there's got to be a communion to that there's got to be some relationship with the lord on that well obviously if you go extreme on that then you throw everything out and it's just well the lord told me to believe blank well we have to bring in the scriptures and even on this topic the reformation again hits centralized says no there are objective things that you do does the bible tell us to take the lord's supper yes it tells us to do this does it tell us to get baptized it does. Does it tell us to pray? Does it are there objective things that we are commanded to do? Well, certainly. But is there a relationship side to the conversation? And the answer is most certainly. It's not either or. Again, it's that middle ground. And so what we're going to walk through is how the church, historically, and especially from the Reformation forward, has thought about and taught and expounded upon the idea of means of grace. Now we'll make more sense of that expression means of grace a little further into the sermon. So let's dive in. i put this in three main sections and I had to alliterate something just to remind you we have a Baptist tradition. So here we go. There's an alliteration. Number one, the meaning of sanctification. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter two. We're going to be just prepare yourself. The Bible is going to be well used this morning. The only time I The only type of topical messages I can stomach are the ones that are still heavily biblical. So we have to stay in the text as much as possible. And so we're going to be in a lot of different passages. Some we'll read directly, some we will reference. But let's dive into, this is one of the most beautiful texts in the New Testament. We're just going to read one verse from this larger paragraph. You probably all know um, this verse, or at least have heard it. We talk about it a lot. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we readily say, in fact, of the five solas, one of them, sola gratia means grace alone. What do you contribute to salvation? Nothing, actually. It's a monergistic work, we'll use that word more technically later. God saves you, you don't save you. You participate in salvation, the word faith is there, you do, you do something, but salvation itself happens to you. And oftentimes we think of Lazarus being raised from the dead as our symbol of what it means to be converted to Christ, is Lazarus was in the tomb, and what did Jesus say? <laughs> Lazarus, come out. And what did Lazarus do? He came out. Well, technically he participated, but would you give him any credit? We said, well, he had to walk out, or he... Of course he was walking out, you know. Jesus raised him from the dead. He's going to come out. No question there. That is the work of grace. You don't earn it. We don't save ourselves through some act of grace. And so when we think about the word grace, so grace usually refers, first blanks in the outline, grace usually refers to God's saving work in sinners. That's how we typically use the word grace. We are saved by grace. Interestingly, though, in the Bible, the word grace often does not refer to that. That's in the Bible. We just read it. Ephesians 2 8 is a perfect example of salvation by grace. No question. But the word grace can be used and means a lot of different things. Now, I love linguistics. I'm super nerdy when it comes to this topic. Technically, words do not have meaning, they have no meaning. Does anybody know what they have instead? usage. Words don't have meaning. They have usage. Let me give you an English example. The word run. Are you in? What does that word mean? To to walk really fast? Or, I mean, I do computer programming. I run programs, right? You may run an app. If you have pantyhose, you can have a run in them. Those don't mean the same. They're different uses, of the same word. Grace is the same. And in the book of Ephesians, is a beautiful example of this. Just look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Does Paul mean salvation by grace? No, he just means, it's greetings, right? You say peace to someone. Grace. It's just this attitude of, of goodness. What we saw in chapter 2, you know, the grace of salvation. But look at chapter 3. Look at verse 2 there, so assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, All right, when you read this, you can perceive of the insight and the mystery of Christ, look down, I'm missing the verse, it's actually verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, how does he use grace in that context? It's actually his calling. That he gets to be a preacher is God's grace. We'll find in chapter 4 that God's grace is a reference to spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gift is an example of God's grace. And then I want to show you one that's particularly interesting. Chapter 4, look at verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk. Come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, Think about how the word grace is used in that sense. Technically, it's synonymous here with the word a few verses before, building up, or edifying, if you like the older term. So there's a grace that's a constructive grace, a building up grace, And what we're really going to be talking about for this series is that type of grace. Taking the Lord's Supper will not save you. It's not saving grace. It's not you getting saved every time you take the Lord's Supper. You don't get saved when you get baptized. You don't get saved when you read the Bible. Now, you could get saved experiencing any of those things. But this is a kind of grace we're going to talk about that does a work in you. Grace that is given to you to build You up. So we're going to look at it from a different perspective. So, next blanks. When we are saved by grace, we are immediately counted as righteous. This is called justification. So, when does justification happen in the Christian life? It's it's at conversion, it's the first part. So, maybe you have heard, and I grew up with this common um, statement, and so maybe you've heard this before, that we get saved. We're being saved, and we will be saved. Anybody ever heard those three distinctions before? Commonly, we use three different shun words to refer to each of those pieces. The first piece that we call justification is getting saved. I got saved, past tense. I got fully and completely saved all at once. I am saved. I am justified. Ephesians 3, you all know 23. You may not know the following verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then are freely justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is declared right. When we put our faith in Christ, we have a verdict already ruled for us in our behalf that we are righteous before the Lord. Now, we all recognize that when Jesus declares us righteous, if we were to compare that declaration To the evidence in our life, might they not be in perfect sync with one another? Jesus says, oh, you are righteous. But if we look at our lives, we don't need a microscope. We don't really need to even go behind the scenes. We can just look on the outside and tell. Not completely. You're not completely righteous. You ever met somebody that got saved and then never sinned a single time? I guess you'd have to see someone literally get saved on their deathbed. And like, like conversion happens and instantaneous death. That'd be the only way we could achieve that in life. We know that there is a radical disconnect between what we have been declared in justification versus what we actually are from day to day. Well, this is that second piece. So we were saved, past tense, justification. Then we are being saved. There's a shun word for that. So one we're concerned about today. Sanctification. So let's think about what sanctification is. Let's look at the next blank. After we are initially saved, we grow in Christ-likeness. This is called sanctification. Let me show you in Romans. If you're in Romans, go to Romans chapter 8. Now, most of us know, could possibly even quote a few passages from Romans chapter 8. I remember when we were studying through Romans, it was a breath of fresh air to finally get there. If you remember that, because there were seven chapters of You're evil and wicked, and you're a terrible person, which is true. And then finally, we get to chapter 8, which starts off with that glorious, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, you've been justified. We've been made right with God. We will not face consequence, the wrath of God for sin, because we've been forgiven. Then there's some other incredible passages in here, but we're going to go forward to verse 29. Now, most of you know 28, um, the... For those who know God, who love God, all things work together for good. But let's look at verse 29. Now this verse, people usually miss this phrase we're going to emphasize because of the other word that's in here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now half the congregation is going to be lost on that word for the rest of the message. I'm sorry. The word is biblical. God predestined us, but to something specific. He planned that you would do something specific. The specific thing is what I want you to see. What He predestined us to do? to be conformed to the image of His Son. So God set up history to make you look like Jesus. That's the whole point. And when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is comparing the law to, to his law. You, know, you may heard that it was said but I say to you, do you remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? And all of these commandments, he doesn't actually change them. He doesn't say, well, you you heard it said that you shall not commit murder. And he doesn't say, well, but now you can. That's not what he does. He, He points to the attitude of the commandment and says, so not only should you not murder, instead you should not what? Hate your brother. The attitude behind it. So in all of these scenarios, he's not changing the commandment. He's pressing the commandment down to its initial original intention, which is always going to be a character. And ultimately, all of these things are going to give us the character of a person. The character the Old Testament wants you to live up to is modeled after whose character? You know the answer. It's Jesus. So it's always been the plan that we would become Christ-like. So here's how we're going to define sanctification then. Last blank under this section. Sanctification is the holistic transformation of a person to be more like Christ. That's what we're talking about when we say sanctification. Now, there's a reason I threw in the word holistic. Our culture likes this word. Um, we use this word in a lot of interesting ways. I'm going to use it in an interesting way here. What I'm saying is sanctification is not you doing more good works. That's a different topic. Right? Good works and sanctification are related They're they're friends with one another, but they are not the same topic. Do you have to be a Christian to do good works? I mean, non-believers do good things, although that's part of the doctrine of common grace. There's common good in the world. Plenty of good things that happen. Doctors do good works all the time, regardless of whether or not they are saved. We are talking here in sanctification not about you becoming a more righteous person, a more godly person, a more goody-two-shoes sort of Christian, that's not what we mean with the word sanctification. We mean instead, you are becoming more like Jesus. So it's primarily concerned, not with your external behavior, but with what? Your character. It's not that you choose not to sin, even though you want to. It's that as you become more like Christ, you want to less often. You see the difference? It's huge. It's everything. So our sanctification process is me becoming more like Jesus, even in my desires, that I want to glorify Him. I want to honor Him. Not just, I do these things because I have to. If we think about, you know, our life before God purely in terms of a list of things we should or should not do, we will go astray because what we're saying is, though I want ABC, Jesus only lets me do these three things over here. And I'll do those three things because I'm supposed to. Well, what does that turn you into, ultimately? You're going to be a hypocrite. You're going to be a Pharisee. Or you're going to give up on it. You're going to walk away and say, this isn't for me. We don't want to change your behavior externally. We want to change your behavior internally, your attitude, your thought process. So sanctification is a holistic transformation of a person to be more like Christ. Now, it's the beginning of the year. What's almost always happening this time of the year um, across, at least across this country, you're making what? Gym memberships. Yeah, I saw a meme on Facebook that had like the gym in December versus the gym in January 1st, and one was empty and the next one crowded, you know. Gyms love January, right? I mean, they make so much money, and then you go two or three times, and then uh, that was a really expensive two-day trip you know remember i got a gym membership like 6 or 7 years ago went ahead and paid for like 6 months worth we literally went twice and it was like i paid for 6 months worth of the gym you know we have a tendency to make new year's resolutions now we know and this is part of our culture we love pragmatics and pragmatics aren't bad they're they're good and useful in a lot of ways We do have to be careful with how we use pragmatics. This is a lot of what we talk about in Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of times A plus B, doesn't matter how well you work out your equation, you have no control over these other variables that come in and smash it all to pieces. And that's just the reality of the world we live in. But at the same time, we do know that there are practical things we can do in life that have pragmatic effect. For instance, if you eat better and exercise more, you will be physically healthier. Now you could still die of cancer, there's, there's still that Ecclesiastes element, you could die in a car accident, a car crash, there's all kinds of other elements, but we know, we still know in a normal scenario, apart from these extraordinary events, that these ordinary practices produce results. If I read my Bible every day, I can say that produces results. If I memorize scripture, that produces results. So we can apply that not just in the secular world, but even in the, the church world, how we sing a song, how we preach. There's a practical, pragmatic question involved in all of these. Yeah, there's pragmatics involved, but before we talk about pragmatics, we need to talk about the mystery of sanctification. This is our next heading. Heading number two, the mystery of sanctification. So let's fill in the blank, and then we will read a passage in Colossians. So the work of the gospel in a person so when the gospel of jesus is doing a work in you this is called a mystery now the greek word for mystery is mystery so you already know it so that's the greek word and it's interesting when we translate it into english we don't change anything they had a similar problem when they were going from greek into latin and you actually know the latin word for mystery you just don't know you do sacrament that's where our english word comes from so when they talked about the sacraments in the Catholic Church, they were saying the mysteries. There's this mysterious thing that happens. What I want to make sure we all know is that sanctification is not a process where you just deposit funds into the account and watch the account go up, or you gain interest at a steady, certain rate. It's not like that at all. In fact, sanctification, if you've been a Christian long enough, sanctification can be a very frustrating process. You ever been there? You, just, you want to see more fruit than you do? You want to see further progress than you do? And you just like, what's the answer? What's the secret? That's what mystery is in English, secret. What's the secret knowledge that I could have? Is there some recipe that if I follow guarantees sanctification? The answer is no. It's not like that at all. There's a mysteriousness to how Christ works in us, and we want to make sure we maintain that mystery. But the mystery belongs in a certain spot. In the conversation. So I don't want to put the mystery in the wrong place. There are places that are mysterious. There's things that are not mysterious. And our goal through this series is to remove the mystery where there shouldn't be mystery and to keep the mystery where it's supposed to be. So let's dive into Colossians. It's a really beautiful passage in Colossians. Now, there'll be a lot of Paul in here. I just love Paul. And It's biblical. Which is good. First, first Colossians. There's not a first, there is a first Colossians. It's just not called that because there's only one of them. So, Colossians, just the only Colossians. Um, chapter one, I'm going to pick up in verse 27, and we're going to just walk through a few bits of this text. Many of us know the conclusion of this paragraph, which is Jesus nailing the certificate of debt to the cross and putting the rules and authorities to open shame. This is the beginning of that paragraph, kind of near the opening. Verse 27, it says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So God's doing a work through Paul and through others of making known this great mystery of the gospel. But he, kind of for Paul, this is just a side note for us. This is the game changer. This side note is very, very important. He defines the mystery. Here's the mystery defined by the Apostle Paul. It says, which is Christ in You, the hope of glory. The great mystery to all of this is that you and Jesus enter into relationship. Now, we've grown up in a culture that emphasizes this. Relationship over the religion. We we pit those words against one another. But this is a very biblical idea. The mystery of the gospel is that you get to have a relationship with Jesus. That's incredible if you think about it. In theology, this is called the mystical union. It's the idea that you, as an individual person, have a relationship with God Almighty. That should blow our minds a little bit. That the transcendent God of the universe has an imminent personal relationship with us in the gospel. There's a mysteriousness to that that is truly difficult to explain. How can God do that? How can we... Participate in that. That is exactly, however, what happens. Now, I want you to jump forward to chapter 2 of this same book. We're going to jump down to verse 11. I want you to see what Paul is getting at here. How does this mystery work in the gospel? It says, In him also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So that's regeneration. You have been woken up. You were dead in sin. Now you are alive in Christ. You have been changed by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, this is key. Having been buried with him in baptism. We like to think about the symbolism of dying in baptism. We die to this world, raised to new life in Christ. But the idea is we're buried with Christ. We've been unified with him. We share in his death. We participate in his death, in which you were also raised, you see it, with him through faith and the powerful working of God. There's some sort of mystical, and this is where we use that word properly, mysterious relationship you enter into with Christ. You become one with him in some sense, some sense that we can't fully grasp, can't fully explain. You participate with Jesus in his burial, in his resurrection. Look down further in verse 13. And you, who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together, you see it, with Him. Do you see this theme? We can see the same theme in in Ephesians 2 right before we read about by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not as your own doing. It says we were made alive with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places. This is consistently Paul's lingo for what it means to know Christ. We are with Him, in Him. In fact, if you took a highlighter, and work through all of the letters of Paul, and highlighted every time you saw the expression, in Christ, or in Him, in the Lord, it would amaze you how frequently he says that. This is his lingo for what it means to know Christ. To be a Christian is you are now in sort of relationship with God. And now here's the glory of that. We know, and and this is why we bring up New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions, we, we love to make them, but we... We're very bad at keeping them. Have you ever found that you, you are very, very bad at bringing transformation in yourself? I mean, we, we probably have a few success stories across the room. You know, somebody, you quit smoking, you whatever your thing was. You, you you made to make progress in that. But we all know that it's really rare, and so much so that we have this tendency to say things like, oh, people don't change. Well, it's a little pessimistic, but how did we develop that pessimism? It's my the Just real experience of seeing people regularly, day by day, not changing. So we know it's difficult to be changed. Biblically, I'm going to go a step further and say it's just not possible. You can't change yourself. Think about it in terms of healing. Do you heal yourself? When Jesus came, did ministry on earth, and he's walking around, and he's healing people, did he ever come up and say, well, man, just think positive. Heal yourself. Obviously, the answer is no. What's he do? The whole work. We say, well, they came to Christ. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't count as work. <laughs> that did not heal them. What heals them? Jesus. Jesus heals them. The only thing that can bring any transformation in you is Jesus himself. Not your acts, not your Lord's Supper, not your baptism, not your prayer, not your communion in any of these senses. The only thing that changes you is Jesus. Well, if you get to know him better... We can rightly assume then, the more you are known by Christ, the more you know Him, what's going to happen in you? More transformation. So the the mystery is how Jesus does change. But there's no mystery in who does the changing. And there's no mystery in what we can do to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at. So the work of the gospel in a person is called a mystery. Next, we cannot change ourselves only Christ can change us. Oh, I already know it's ten after or close, so God, we're just going to run through. This. this is good stuff, so let's just you know. I know you're hungry, but let's let's feed on the word. We're about halfway through, so forgive me. We'll see what happens. Maybe poor play. This should have been two parts, but but we'll get there. All right. So in Matthew chapter nine verse twenty, we won't go read the whole narrative. This is the story when Jesus is supposed to be going to heal the girl, and then he gets interrupted by that lady who had a discharge. And the lady just comes up and touches the fringe of Jesus' garment. And what happened to her? She gets healed. And it's almost like this Jesus didn't even know what was happening, which is very anthropomorphic because Jesus is God. He knows everything. But in the story, it's a very peculiar, very interesting story. But for our sake, here's what I want you to think about how the means of grace work. Touching the garment did not heal that lady. But it is the outward form she used to be healed in. But who healed her? Jesus. The power of Jesus healed. There's a sense in which our means of grace, our sanctification process, is us learning how to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Does that make sense? We're not learning, all right, if I just practice these disciplines by rote, by duty, that will produce change. That's not my goal. My goal is not actually to even produce transformation. We'll talk about that in a minute. My goal really is just to come into union with Christ. I just want to know Him, get to know Him. I want to be in His presence. You can imagine all the sick people who knew Jesus was coming. What was their only goal in life when Jesus came to town? I just want to get in His his presence. I just need to get in front of Jesus. Then I can be healed. That's the same thing with sanctification. I just need to get in front of the one who can do it. I don't need to take it into my own hands. I don't need to try to heal myself. I just need to get into the presence of the one who can. So next blank here, our participation in sanctification is wholly dependent upon God. So there's been a debate historically. Can we? I'm going to get real nerdy for just a second. I apologize, Be using some big words. There's a, a, a debate in the church about whether or not sanctification is monergistic or synergistic. Anybody ever heard those two words before? Okay, so it's, it's very simple if you know what they mean. Monergistic just means one worker. Versus synergistic is two people working together. Well, think about your salvation. Is that you and Jesus working together to come up with a plan to save you? No, salvation is monergistic. There's no debate there. God just saves you wakes you up. But then the debate is on the sanctification side, well, is that both of you working together? Is that synergism? Or is that monergism? We just passively receive the work of Christ. And you study church history, you'll see people willing to die on either hill. And really both groups are right. You participate in the process of salvation, but you don't participate in any of the saving. That may seem like a very, you know, nuanced differentiation. You can go touch the garment, but there's nothing you do that actually heals you. So the only participatory role you play is to get near Jesus. Now, you want to call that a work? Okay, I don't think that's probably the best word to use. I'm going to call that a, just a means, a means of grace, actually. Let's just get near Jesus. Let's draw near Jesus to Christ through some means, but all of the transformation is done by Christ exclusively. You don't do that. In fact, there's a sense in which this should be relieving because it's not up to you. You just need to go hang out with the Messiah. Just get into the presence of the Lord. So we've talked about the meaning of sanctification, the mystery of sanctification. Let's put a little bit of flesh on the bones now. The means... Of, participa- or of sanctification. So we participate in the work of sanctification by applying certain means. We use this word sometimes in our modern vocabulary, um, maybe in a few older expressions. Like, do the ends justify the means? Right? And we use the word means in that context. I mean, the, the tools or the processes or the actions I do to reach a particular end and that's how we're going to use the word means it's how it's classically used in theology what are the actions that we do to participate in sanctification in other words what are the actions we do to enter into proximity to Christ so for the lady at who touched the garment she made her way through the crowd and she touched the garment so spiritually speaking what are the actions that we do to enter into the presence of Christ. Another good Old Testament example of means. you remember Naaman? He's this guy, he's not Israelite. He comes because he's heard of this amazing prophet, Elisha, and he wants to get healed of his leprosy, and he comes down to Elisha, and Elisha's really just kind of, It's kind of funny if you read the story, because Elisha's like, I'm not even going out to meet this guy. He's a big deal, and then he's really mad that he's not treated like a big deal. And then the message is, go bathe yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And from where he's from, the Jordan River is this dirty, nasty little creek compared to this beautiful great river of his home country. And he's like, that's, no. But he ends up, eventually, he does bathe himself in the river seven times, and his leprosy is washed away. Is it because the Jordan River had healing power? No. It was just the means that the prophet designated through which he would receive healing. None of the things we're going to talk about have in them some mystical power. They are just the designated ways Jesus has commanded that we enter into relationship frequently with him. The healing power is always only Christ. So much so if we do these things apart from Christ, we do literally waste our time. Paul told the, the Corinthian believers in that passage we always read about the Lord's Supper, if they were doing it wrong, don't even bother because it's about Jesus. If we're not doing it to have communion with Christ, we are missing the point. So next point, our goal in using the means of grace Is not to produce transformation, so much as to experience the presence of Christ. I know we're running out of time, but I do want this is the most beautiful passage on how this works in all of Scripture. This is 2 Corinthians chapter three. We're going to pick up in verse sixteen, and you know some of the verses here. You've heard them quoted. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what, how, how do you get transformation? You look at Jesus. That's the model. If I go down, look at verse 6 in chapter 4. Really, it's the same thought for Paul. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that same God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. The means won't transform you. The means get you into the presence of Christ. Christ transforms you. That's our goal, is let's get to know Christ. All right, let me give you the three, and it may be interesting that I'll only give you three here. There are three means of grace given in Scripture. Number one, um, the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. Um, Often, the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituted this in in Matthew's Gospel. We see it also in Luke's Gospel. It's quoted again in 1 Corinthians. Jesus commanded his disciples, and he said, Do this in remembrance of me. It is an ordained, or we should better say commanded, thing we are supposed to do. And we'll talk more about that next week specifically. The second one is baptism. Is a direct sacrament, and it seems like, well, that's a silly one, because you only get it once, and then you don't remember it. That's actually not true. I'm going to talk about how we all participate in the sacrament of baptism every time anybody gets baptized. I may only get baptized once, but the more we see baptism, you know the Sundays we have baptism. How's that feel for the church? Oh, man, the attitude that it creates to see the work of God visualized in someone's life. It's amazing. We're going to talk about that on the third Sunday. And then the Word, the proclaimed, the taught Word of God is the third and only, there's just those three, one, two, three sacraments in Scripture. So, I know you're thinking, well, what about prayer? What about fasting? We're going to talk about all those two. Here's the difference. The Lord's Supper, baptism, and the Word are objective. Do you know the difference between an object and a subject? What's the subject in a sentence? So we're talking about if you were writing a paper, what pronoun would you use if you were writing subjectively? I. I am the subject in my world. The object is something other than me. Well, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and the Word are all objective. They're outside of me. Prayer fasting, memorizing Scripture, those are subjective things. And typically, in church history, we've called the three here, the Lord's Supper, Baptism, and the Word, sacraments or means of grace, whereas all the others are called disciplines. We're going to cover both categories. We're going to start with the objective, which will also mean they're corporate in nature, and move to the subjective, which will have a tendency to be more private in nature. We're going to look at how all of these at work in us produce the work of transformation, not because they do the transformation, because they put us in communion with Christ. So that final one, there's no blanks there. I want you to make sure you get it. Our goal in sanctification is just to get to know Christ. The means of grace just how we get to know Him better. And that distinction is everything. Guys, we're going to grow in Christ this year. Because we are going to start doing the means of grace faithfully as a church. We already do them. We're going to do them on purpose. We're going to seek to know Christ this year. And then we're going to learn how to do it on our own, subjectively, in private, our devotion, our disciplines to the Lord. We're going to spend about eight weeks doing this. Guys, this is going to be a blessing to study this. We're going to get it all from Scripture. We're going to grow together in the Lord.